Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and once again, I'm joined by Cam Maitland and Alicia Fletcher. And this is the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. Sundance. It's one of the foremost film festivals in the world. Not only are they responsible for launching some of the biggest names in modern Hollywood, but also for nurturing that talent and bringing a spotlight to independent cinema for mainstream audiences like never before. They'd been around since 1978, but the 90s were really Sundance's time to shine. Cam, why was 92 such a big year for Sundance and especially for female filmmakers? Well, I mean, it's a big year for Sundance because Sundance is now officially Sundance. Basically, it's uh, rebranded. But um, it's also a big year, partially because there's essentially what is considered the indie film boom from uh, 1989 to 1995. And this is kind of dead smack in the center of it. Is there a film Um, that's sort of credited with like launching the indie boom? Yeah, Sex, Lies and Videotape, pretty much 100%. It uh, went from Sundance to winning uh, Cannes, uh, winning the Grand Prix. So that essentially made people realize that they could purchase and sell uh, indie films for a lot of money and that they would be respected. Which usually um, goes the other way, right? You, you're you at yeah. Cannes and then Sundance. So it's like one of those yeah. rare instances where you're at Sundance first. You're right. And I actually think it didn't happen. <laughs> Considering it that happened, I don't think it happened a ton after. I, yeah, I can't even think of a single example where something was at Cannes <laughs> after Sundance. Yeah, <laughs> I, guess, I guess the thing is after that... Sundance became like you didn't need can as well right Correct. like Sundance was its own can but um yeah so so partially that just made it a thing where suddenly Hollywood was paying attention it's interesting because also like to us the Sundance of 1992 would still seem very quaint <laughs> but it was really the start of like uh suddenly bigger celebrities were looking to act in indie films uh suddenly bigger labels uh were looking it was the launch of a lot of uh, independent distribution labels, kind of briefly. A lot of them died. We'll actually probably get into that a bit more next episode. Um, but yeah, the other funny thing is there's essentially three movies. Sex, Lies, and Videotapes is one. My Left Foot is another because that was an independent film that won a bunch of Oscars. And the one that a lot of people don't think about and is not very Sundance related is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah. Uh, which what? was the highest grossing independent film of all time for a long time. Huh. Uh, it was completely independently financed and uh, brought together. Essentially, people just realized... Partially because there's so many new distribution channels. There was video, there was TV, mm-hmm. all this was expanding. Um, and it's worth saying the reason why they say it's uh, 89 to 95 is uh, in 93, Disney bought Miramax. Mm. And in uh, 94, uh, Turner Broadcasting bought uh, New Line, Fine Line, and Castle Rock Entertainment. So essentially, from 95 onward, even the big indie labels are technically corporate owned and had to answer to 
uh, a board, you know. So, so it wasn't, um, if you will, the Wild West for filmmaking anymore. No. I, and this time specifically, like you say, is a time I think when it was so open and people were so interested in giving money to independent productions and kind of seeing what came out of it that you get a lot of specifically women directors and uh, directors of color. Now, Sundance is known to be an incubator of sorts as well, which is different from Cannes, which is more of a marketplace, whereas Sundance offers a lot of tutelage and a lot of mentorship programs. Yeah, totally. I mean, the Sundance Institute, uh, the the kind of big 1992 story out of the Sundance Institute is Reservoir Dogs, mm-hmm. which uh, was partially developed through it. Um, it's funny, actually, if you look at the New York Times coverage of Sundance, they're obsessed with Poison Ivy. Yeah. Which they're like, that's the perfect mix of art, film, and commerce. And then they have this paragraph, and there's like, and this first-time filmmaker, Quentin Tarantino, made this thing called Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh boy. But yeah, In the Soup was the big movie, which a lot of people forget is Seymour Cassell and Steve Buscemi. Sundance, I think, was making a big effort with women, and still does to this day. People like Cache, as we say, with Poison Ivy, uh, Mira Nair uh, with Mississippi Masala. Greta Snyder, Jocelyn Morehouse. There, there was a lot of women directors. Uh, Bill Duke was on the jury at the time. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was it's was interestingly a very diverse place. And you see a lot of these directors emerge. And unfortunately, part of the end of the boom is that a lot of these directors who had films that were significant in the early 90s evaporate. These are films that you've never heard of because the label got bought by some corporation and, and it's in rights hell now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are filmmakers who had a big chance because it was the Wild West. Uh, And then when the Wild West stopped being wild, uh, they didn't have quite as many opportunities. And a lot of them became directors for hire. So they would work in television or they'd work Mm -hmm. on other projectors or they stayed in that that super indie world. So you may not have heard of their films, but they've been really active making their own thing. I I think we'll talk about a couple people where you're like, oof. Uh, But for the most part, people have had pretty good careers and don't complain. A lot of them are professors, which I think we run into quite a bit Mm -hmm. uh, with indie people we look back at. A lot of them produce things and are involved in kind of ways you wouldn't expect. Just so many groundbreaking filmmakers who at the time were phenoms are are not necessarily household names anymore. One of the people who made a big deal at Sundance was a woman named Allison Anders. A big piece of advice a lot of filmmakers get is, you know, create what you know, write what you know, start with a story that you can really relate to. And uh, her film, Gas Food Lodging, which was based on Richard Peck's 1972 young adult novel, Don't Look and It Won't Hurt, weirdly paralleled her own life when it came to her. So when she made this film, it definitely hurts to watch, especially as you watch. It's a beautiful film. Absolutely incredible. And that's what we're going to start off talking about today. Cam, you've done a deep dive on this one. Yeah, yeah. We show it on Hollywood Suite. You can uh, check your local listings. It's a very interesting one. Alison Anders is somebody I was curious about because I always remember she is the sole uh, women's voice in four rooms. Mm, Right. (laughs) That 90s indie. And you're kind of like yeah who was this because she has the segment with madonna which Mm -hmm. is kind of one of the big show pieces and this is kind of what her big movie and like you say i am actually fascinated to know the legal reason why they must say that this is based on richard peck's novel (laughs) because if you read the plot of the novel uh, it is very loosely based and it is so deeply based as you say on alison andrew's own life uh, that it's kind of fascinating. This is going to sound like I am going a weird deep amount into her life, but she loves to talk about kind of the extent of her uh, tough 
upbringing. Well, because it's fascinating. Um, like, as I was reading it, yeah. I was like, oh, this is a movie. Like, you've lived a movie oh, in your yeah. first, like, and, 21 years. Yes. And she says every movie she makes is deeply autobiographical. She calls her genre autobiographical melodrum. <laughs> um, and, it's like an uh, oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because many of her films are adaptations or they're based on real people. Uh, but she's like, no, these are all about me. Among other things, she was a teen runaway. Uh, she spent time in mental institutions. She spent time in jail all before the age of 20. Uh, she was affected uh, as a child by a very brutal sexual assault, uh, which comes up in a few of her films. She had a child when she was incredibly young uh, with a man who I don't even know that she knows his name. She kind of just met him briefly and he disappeared. And at that point, wasn't she in the UK? Like she ended up in the yes, UK yes. somehow. Yeah. She ended up in the UK, and I think this is, again, all before she she's really kind of in her 20s. Uh, she ends up settling in Los Angeles, uh, settles in uh, Los Feliz, I believe, and uh, Los Feliz. Let's, let's pretend I'm not that cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, but she becomes very involved in, in the Latinx community, which is involved in many of her films. She ends up going, she essentially had no formal high school. She ends up going to community college and then is kind of interested in film and she ends up kind of going to film. She's a very uh, talented writer. Hey, Alicia, who uh, does this sound like? I was just going to say it's very similar to Elaine May. Just a different, oh, yeah. a different, you know, decade. You know what? I also think that the, the, we're going to be talking a lot about women filmmakers here. Uh, and I think it seems like a lot of women filmmakers made it by being incredibly talented writers yeah. mm -hmm. uh, that impressed people. And that works, I think, especially well in the early 90s when there's so many film schools. So she ended up going to UCLA, which is pretty amazing. Alicia, this is something you would obviously know about because you're big on Hollywood's golden era. Like, you know a lot about that. Like, mm -hmm. that's mostly how women were able to be involved, right? They were script girls or they were editors or they were uh, or they were writers. Or they were, yeah, like full-blown credited screenwriters going back to the silent era. Um, like, when we first had gender parity in film history, which was like the 20s um, and a little bit before that, more like the 10s and 20s, a lot of it was because women were actively um, addressed as screenwriters because they knew that women were their biggest audience in, in, in theaters so that they wanted to see women's stories. And I think that that changed, obviously, if we're talking about the 1990s in Hollywood, because I think people were baffled at the idea that people wanted to see women's stories. Mm. Um, but that idea of screenwriters always being women and often women writing under male pseudonyms that goes back to the last century. Okay. Yeah, cuz I'm always curious about like what shifted and this obviously was a really big shift for Hollywood to see all these these female filmmakers making these stories about women and Gas Food Lodging is definitely a story about for women about women. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's a story of a family of all women, a, a young daughter, Shade played by Feruza Balk, uh, kind of, you know, post-high school daughter uh, named Trudy, played by Ioni Skye. I think and she's, the single... she's in high school because she drops out. Oh, is she? Okay, yeah. I can never remember. <laughs> she just hangs <laughs> like out at a diner mostly. Oh, she's as messed up, as, as a messed up yeah. choice as you can make, she tends to make those choices, yes. unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Feruza Balk is like the good parts of Alison Anders' life. Ioni Skye is the bad parts. Mm -hmm. And Brooke Adams uh, is the mother of uh, them, who is kind of modern Alison Anders, who is a single mom who's struggling to work mm -hmm. hard and... Uh, support her kids and also uh all of them are kind of involved in romance uh in a way that it, uh, is different uh shade is very obsessed with uh like spanish 
melodramas of the 1950s mm-hmm. that play in their sm- small New Mexico town. Uh, Ione Sky has a bad reputation in town, uh, but she falls for a, uh, a, I guess he's a paleontologist. What is he? A rock Some sort <laughs> finding of, yeah, man? Yeah, specifically day glow rocks. <laughs> yes. know if I a man who's thing. obsessed with uh, rocks that glow in the dark, uh, who's passing through town, uh, and her mother is just uh, try, trying to find whatever romance uh, she has a deadbeat uh, ex-husband uh, she she has a kind of a, an on and off again guy at the diner she sleeps with. Okay, who's married, played by Chris Mulkey from Twin mm-hmm. Peaks, who I plays Hank say, in Twin yeah. Peaks. And my whole thing is that whenever he shows up, because he's such a noticeable character actor, and I hate the character of Hank so much that immediately my, my feelings are colored the moment he pops up on screen, mm-hmm. regardless of what role he's in. So that he's playing a married man having an affair with his diner waitress makes me very angry. And we uh, should point out that her... Her ex-husband, although it's unclear if they're divorced or not, but the father of the t- yeah. her two children is James Brolin. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> James Brolin in a, in a very good role. Yeah, like he's it's great. A, a very interesting James Brolin role. Um, yeah, she she has she has some real, and I mean the the third man in her sphere is the weird satellite dish repairman, <laughs> who seems like such a dope. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she has a pretty good flirtation with who has um, the best name ever, which is Hamlet. Humphrey. So yes. I'm I'm very into it. I love it. And Allison Anders says that her uh her biggest fear as a child is she would fall in love with Hamlet Humphrey. <laughs> <laughs> so that's also funny because uh she I mean it seems like she's saying so Hamlet Humphrey is a good thing now as an adult. And a lot of it is about uh the expectations versus reality of romance and of just interpersonal relationships, kind of. Uh, there's also just such a hunt for stability in this, which makes it a very yeah. uncomfortable film. Like, nothing is ever quite certain. And the choices that everybody makes are just to be like, hey, can I just be okay for like 15 minutes? For the love of God, just <laughs> let me be okay for 15 minutes. It's rough. But in but you never feel taken advantage of, even though it is melodramatic. Yeah, I would also say it's a fairly, like, dark things happen. But it, it, it's a fairly pleasant movie because I think mostly for me, when I wrote about this movie, I think what m- keeps it kind of light is it's mostly told from the point of view of Shade, who's the youngest daughter, who it plays on this dramatic irony where she has this kind of beautiful view of the world. For instance, she's deeply in love with her friend who is blatantly gay. Yeah. <laughs> and, also played uh, by Iona Skye's uh, real-life brother. Yes, uh, Donovan's other child. <laughs> yeah, we should mention that, that these are both the children of the the, the Scottish singer Donovan. Folk which singer, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very weird. Uh, and he's Donovan Jr. But uh, yeah, so there's just stuff like that. And that irony where kind of you know the darker truth because uh, she narrates as well. So, so even when we're seeing stuff that uh, she doesn't quite understand... Uh, she kind of will talk over it in a way that uh, warms your heart. <laughs> the narration's really interesting because generally speaking, I'm not attracted to films that have overt narration that way. Um, and I mm. do think it's a really big trend in the late 80s and into the early 90s of like, if something's wrong with the film, a producer or the studio is always like, just put some narration on it so it makes sense. And it always ends up awful. This is such a rare case where it's almost like she's reading the diary entries of a 15 or 16-year-old girl. And I think as someone who was once a 15 or 16-year-old girl, I related to that so much, like the floweriness and the just the lack of really mature understanding of, of 
first of all, what class she's in. There's so much about this film is about class. They live in a yeah. double wide trailer and uh, Brooke Adams' character, the mother, is, you know, a diner waitress. And there's really very little way to, like, get out from under extreme poverty. And I feel like so much of Shade's character is un- unaware of how stuck she is in in low-class poverty. I want to take us back just for a second to talk about that it is narrated by the Shade character. So the story is from her point of view, and it is a story written and directed by a woman who was also presumably once, you know, a 15 or 16-year-old girl. And I feel like in 2020, we have more of an idea of, like, the male gaze and the female gaze and, you know, just this awareness of the effect, the personal experience of who is shaping the story, uh, be it, like, the screenwriter or the director, uh, what effect they have on the way the story is being told. Um, But we're going to see in 1992, throughout really all the movies we're talking about this year, uh, that concept of a movie with a particular type of gaze, in this case, the female gaze, was really throwing some people for a loop. Uh, Here's Alison Anders with interviewer Elizabeth Subrin. I believe it's Subrin, might be Subrin, my apologies, uh, at a live Q&A at the Lightbox Film Center at International House in Philadelphia, explaining some of the dissonance she personally experienced on set with some of her actors. Uh, All the male actors, all the male leads, um, each one of them, with independently of each other, came to me at some point when before we started shooting or while we were shooting, saying there was just a scene missing. They felt like their character, there was a scene missing. <laughs> and the scene was when he takes charge and tells her, put down that pizza, I love you, or, you know, whatever. Why do they keep coming to me with this? And then I was like, oh, that's what they're doing. I go, oh, no, you don't have to do that in this movie. You just relax. They got it. They got this. <laughs> To go back to Shade, well, she's also found her own escapism by watching the movies, right? Which Allison yes. Anders also did by making the movies. Like, that was yeah. her yeah. big escape. So I, I, yeah. I was curious if these were real films. The, so there's a Mexican um, theater that she goes to, and it's she's obsessed with an actress named Elvia Rivera, which I was actually almost tricked for the first part of the film, wondering if that was a real person. It's a great name for a cat. I love it. (laughs) It's very cute. But uh, of course, like, so that means Alison Anders also directed the Spanish language meta films to be shown on screen when it's literally just Fruza Balk's character alone in the theater watching them. And it's unclear (laughs) if her character is fluent in Spanish. Like, it's unclear how much she actually understands of what's happening. There's no subtitles or anything like that. Um, And I really loved that, that film within the film. Well, let's talk about Faroujia Balk just for a second, because she was not at the beginning of her career. She'd been a child actor, which a lot of people forget she was in Return to Oz, that Mm -hmm. most devastating Mm -hmm. of films. And this is kind of a turning point in her career because she's still playing this innocence that's about to be broken. And then she'd go on and do the craft and then she'd be cast as the bad girl from there on in. Mm -hmm. Right. So she had that like little transition point. Yeah, she we should say she won the Independent Spirit Award. For this performance, yeah. which is a really big deal and at a very young age. She um, was 17. Really, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think she's 15 or 16 when she's filming this. Her, if I had to pick one thing that makes her really iconic in this film, like her fashion is so fantastic. Like mm. it mixes in early 90s grunge, 
and a lot of vintage, but it's beyond that. It really is her own. And what really pissed me off about the advertising for this film, and I think if you Google you know, this film title and the first image that comes up is like the poster or the cover of the mm-hmm. DVD. They purposely made her look much more mature and sexy, like a mm-hmm. guest model on all the marketing materials, which is so far from what her character actually is in this film. Ioni Sky is more of that, certainly. She's also an older character. Um, but yeah, she's so independent. She's so dreamy. She's so, she's a loner. She's just so beyond her years in intellect and in empathy as well. She's one of the most empathetic characters in the film. Well, she's got those big eyes. There's a lot going on oh, in those gosh. big sure. eyes, right? It's yeah. Christina Ricci, man. <laughs> like, I get yeah. it. Yeah. I was going to also say that even Ioni Sky weirdly isn't dressed like that. She kind of no. has her own kind of cool punk aesthetic. I wonder, though, like if the poster is almost like a play on the melodrama stuff, you know, like yeah. the over the top. I can just see like if this did well, which it did, you know, on the festival mm-hmm. circuit, whoever bought it, and I can't remember who bought it to distribute, it was probably just like the only way this sells is if these two girls look sexy. That's, yeah. I mean, that still the, happens today. The only, the thing that interests me and I think also shows a big disconnect between uh, how people sell movies and like movies by women is that this is a very sexy movie yeah. too. Mm-hmm. This is, movie has a very like explicit Ioni Sky sex scene. And yet again, it's fairly lost. This isn't a movie that probably is like Mr. Skin is writing about. Yeah. You know? but it's also in a film that is surrounded by issues of sexual assault and it's really darkened sure. by issues of sexual assault. But that scene doesn't feel predatory. In fact, it's no, it, it, no. you're right. It's sexy and it's beautiful. Like yeah. the glowing rocks and, are very cinematic. I mean, it's nice. Yeah, Brooke Adams also has a like a robust sex life without judgment. And I mean, a lot of the Feruza Balk stuff is to, trying to kind of navigate sex and understand it and, and also realize, you know, that the her one guy she was after is gay. The other people are mean. And she luckily has this like cute relationship with uh, Javier. Uh, also, there's this undercurrent of race <laughs> throughout mm-hmm. the whole movie uh, of, of the latino community in the town it's an interesting thing because i think nowadays you might see this movie and be like oh why is this white lady writing about (laughs) but at the time i think she worked really hard it's just we're in a different time where things are considered differently but i think she was very interested in in seeing latin american stories told on film and she worked very hard her next film mi vida loca is kind of famous as well uh, about uh, Los Angeles and communities there. And also music-wise, you talk about, she's, uh, all, another crazy part of her life is she was, like, friends with Duran Duran yeah. and Well, stuff. and Jay Maskis uh, is in this movie. And for people yeah, who know... Yeah, Jay Maskis did the whole soundtrack. Dinosaur Jr. And famous curmudgeon, who I am also obviously <laughs> a very big fan of. But, uh, but yeah, he appears in this film, and he, he's very rarely on film. Like, if you watch any of his mm. interviews or anything, he's like, yep, nope. <laughs> yep, like he's not a man of many words, but to see him in this, that was a nice little thrill and a joy. And he's, yeah, his his um, his soundtrack is fantastic as well. Yeah, the soundtrack mm-hmm. on this, even the tracks that are not specifically like Dinosaur Jr., it, it really is like a time capsule. I really, uh, if you're into the early 90s, and I, I hear the kids, people much younger than us, are really bringing the early 90s back. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is sort of the banner film, although I know they're probably not watching it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I think you're right absolutely about the fashion. I think kids today would really love both the looks of Ioni Sky and Feruza Balk. At one point, I think Ioni Sky is wearing an eight ball leather jacket. Oh, she yeah. is. Like, you uh, bet she Seinfeld, is. Seinfeld, like putty's it's, jacket. It's pretty much the Seinfeld one. Yeah. I have never seen someone pull that off. 
like pre-Seinfeld the way that she does. It's, Ione uh, Sky, let's just say, we're going to get into her more later because she shows up in another one of our yeah, films she, For some reason, she's a big 1992 person. Yeah, she's huge. <laughs> yeah, she's a very interesting actress because, you know, she was positioned with Say Anything as mm-hmm. kind of another one of, you know, the Brat Pack. From what we're seeing, especially in 1992, she very deeply dug into indie filmmaking. And she's and, cooler and probably than that. Yeah, yeah, cutting her own path, you know. And then later was one of my favorite characters on Arrested Development. Yes, and true. Anne's, Anne's mother. mother. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the good thing about Gas Food Lodging is that it's fairly accessible. You can watch it. Allison Anders went on to have a really good career. However, what would happen if you showed up at Sundance and you made a ton of noise with your film and then it just disappeared? And then to date, you have not been able to make a second film. Well, that's what happened to Leslie Harris and her, quite frankly, spectacular Just Another Girl on the IRT. Uh, It's a movie that's often discussed in the same breath as Clueless, and she's got to have it. And uh, quite frankly, it should be just as well known. Although, in my opinion, it's far more like Fast Times at Ridgemont High in terms of its tone. Yeah, this film shocked and enthralled me. I'm so excited that we get to talk about it. Um, Obviously, it's quite, it's not the easiest film to see. And I want to say we don't have it on Hollywood Suite, but it is currently on Hoopla if you're in Canada and you can watch it through your public library. And I just say that because I want to make sure people do that. And there's also a restoration coming, thank goodness, from both Sundance and from the Will and Jada Smith Foundation, which there should be Mm -hmm. because it's amazing. So theoretically, I'm I don't think Sundance is happening this year in person. But uh, yeah, theoretically, that could be out in January of 2021. Um, so this film is is produced in 1992 and it premieres at the Toronto International Film Festival, which is what makes it a 1992 film. Um, but it does show in 1993 in January uh, at Sundance and it, it makes so many waves. It's it's what everyone was talking about that year at Sundance, yet didn't bring home major prizes. Um, it is directed, like you say, Becky, by Leslie Harris, who is a black female director. Uh, and it stars Ariane A. Johnson, which I think some of our listeners might be familiar with her. She's a very prolific television actress. She was in the Steve Harvey show. Um, and she's very, very young in this film as uh, Chantel Mitchell. And Chantel Mitchell is a 17-year-old high school student, gets good grades, really smart, almost too smart in some ways. Like she she falls into that category and this comes up a number of times in the film, mostly by her white teachers who are basically mm-hmm. telling her in not so many words that she is too loud, too proud, too black, too feminist. Like she's someone who will actually put her hand up in a classroom and try to take over the lesson. And I really loved those scenes. Um, she works uh, part-time at a grocery store. It's actually Zabar's, which is a really, really famous New York uh, deli. Um, and she, you know, she grows up, I think she's in Brooklyn. I, yeah, it's Brooklyn. Yes. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 it and is, yeah. Her, her dad works night shifts. Her mom works day shifts. So she's really responsible for taking care of her two younger siblings. Like, she has an incredible amount of responsibility for a 17-year-old. Uh, and But she also has an incredible amount of aspirations and dreams. And a lot of these, if, if we look at gas food lodging, where a lot of it is structured around uh, shade, fruza box, sort of diary entries, this is very different. And I really loved, the, loved this about this film. It is her character looking directly at the audience and addressing them. 
I think that's where the Cher Horowitz connection comes yes, in, because which would come out in 1996, because there is that direct address. There's that attitude. There's that, hey, welcome to my world. This is what yeah, you need to know. These yeah. are the rules. And we can certainly talk about it, but like this film does get compared to Clueless, which is, is not mm-hmm. accurate to me. No, but, it's um, much, if you're going to Amy Heckerling, it's Fast Times at Ridgemont yeah. High. I think it's the hats. Yeah. <laughs> I really <laughs> oh, think yeah. it's, she's a very snappy, cool oh, dresser Very cool as well. fashion in this. Very yeah. different kind of early 90s fashion, obviously, than Gas Food Lodging. Um, and she wants she aspires to be a doctor and she really doesn't want to fall into the trap of living in the low income neighborhoods that she lives in and she doesn't want to fall into the traps that she sees in her peers and unfortunately though and I I do think it's we have to it's not a spoiler because it does happen pretty early in the film she does become pregnant um, and this is so that is certainly a trigger warning this is maybe one of the most frank graphic depictions of teen pregnancy I could ever ever imagine in a theatrical film. It is so well done. I don't want that to turn people off because obviously if I actually didn't know that that was part of the plot when I started this film. Um, I know it's it's sort of a it's a tough topic. Like we don't relish the idea of a seventeen year old hiding a pregnancy, but um, but so many of these movies because well, we're going to get into some more movies that also take place in um, black communities in New York uh, later on in the nineteen ninety two series. Um, you often do see young women with babies on their hips, young women or teen yeah. moms with babies on their hips, but you don't know their stories. You just know how it's oh, affected yeah. the men in their life. This is about uh, her. It's worth saying that, like, one of the, like, there's a lot of talk of sex and AIDS yes. and stuff like that. And, and this was very heavily researched. Leslie Harris worked at the Brooklyn Teen Pregnancy Center, kind of getting research. But it's also worth saying that uh, African American teens between 1991 and 1994 had the highest birth rate mm-hmm. of any Jeez. group. Uh, and also, uh, about a hundred thousand of the AIDS cases at the time were uh, African American people. And yeah. Uh, you, I mean, you see it in the film because you see the girls, like her friends and her, talking about, okay, well, you can't get pregnant if you do it on your period. And, oh, don't worry, we can't mm-hmm. get AIDS because, you know, we're having heterosexual sex. And, like, Leslie Harris is so careful to point out how lacking education was in the school system, how parents were potentially too busy to, like, really talk to their kids about this. Like, Chantel's a very, very intelligent person and I think it's important to point out that she's still susceptible to these forces that are, you know, very difficult to deal with. And she really doesn't understand what's happening to her body. It's the predation of hormones, too, right? You're yes. like, you're a teen. Yeah. You want to fuck. That's how this works. And that's, yes. that's what she falls prey to. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it it's just so well done. Her performance is stunning. <laughs> like, it's so I can't. I know she's not 17 at the time when she was in this. I think she was more like 20 or 21, the actress, but um, Ariane P. Johnson. But uh, I just I can't even wrap my head around how this film isn't better known. This also took a really long time to get made, didn't it, Alicia? Like they had cast her way earlier. Yeah. So it took a really, really long time to get made. And, you know, if there was a, more avenues in the early 90s for white female directors to get funding, those avenues, I would say, were not as open to black female filmmakers. Um, And so despite this taking years to produce, it was only shot in 17 days, which is uh, incredibly short. And it was the full budget was $130,000. And the way that Leslie Harris raised that was by day job temping, working for a not-for-profit film organization so that she could donate her time and be able to borrow the cameras and the things that she needed and the lighting for free. 
And then also cash eventually dried up. And uh, the author, Terry McMillan, who has written a number of very important novels, but mostly known for Waiting to Exhale, actually cut a check for her, as Mm. did the filmmaker Michael Moore. Um, Michael Moore of Bowling from Columbine fame. But I mean, that's another thing that we to talk about with Sundance is the idea of Sundance building a network of filmmakers who came up through that festival route and were then able to uplift and help and fund up and coming filmmakers. That definitely was happening at this time. So this was very difficult to produce. And the and it, the thing is, the reviews are they're very good. They're very um, there's not a bad review anywhere for this film. And it was such a such a refreshing film at Sundance that everyone was talking about. To have it not get much in terms of distribution is really a testament to, I think, pervasive racism in the early 90s. Leslie Harris herself said, uh, I believe at the end, there's a, there's a title card that says, this is the movie Hollywood didn't dare to make. And yeah. uh, she's not wrong. Like when you watch this, the first half, again, very clueless, very like you're on this girl's side. She's cool. Mm-hmm. She's fun. She's awesome to be with. And then she starts to make these horrific choices on the back end. And I love to yell at the TV. That's how I watch yeah, movies. Yeah. Um, and you're just yelling at the TV with the choices she's making, but you believe she would make them. Well, and it does have a happy ending, spoiler alert. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. man, for like a good like 15 minutes, it's devastating and hard to watch. I think there's a lot of places people expect would have expected this film to go from the screenplay or just reading synopsis. Mm-hmm. One thing that she, Leslie Harris had to fight, there was a lot of pressure from people reading the screenplay to make Chantel's boyfriend a drug dealer. And she refused to fall into that stereotype. This comes out theatrically in 1993. Only two years prior, Julie Dash released Daughters of the Dust in 1991. That was the first time any black woman directed film had gotten any theatrical release. It took 1991. So often Just Another Girl in the IRT is noted as the first film to be directed by a black woman with a wide theatrical release. The word wide is important because technically Julie Dash has the first theatrical at all, and it wasn't necessarily a wide release. It's another film that got lost to decades and only recently has been restored, put on the National Film Registry and noted as one of the most important films of all time. And I think Just Another Girl in the RT, once this new restoration is completed and it hopefully becomes more accessible on wider streaming platforms, could definitely reach that status to me. It still feels fresh. Like, this is something mm-hmm. I feel like could have been made last year. I mean, she's a very, very competent and excellent filmmaker, but, like, it's still handheld cameras at times. and mm-hmm. But what that lends is this intimacy. And I felt like when you're talking about Becky, about how like you're just screaming at the television. And yeah, I wanted to scream at her that it's like, no, you can't wait to think about having an abortion after the weeks of your pregnancy. Like She's like <laughs> waiting too long. At the same time, I empathize because I remember being super stupid about that stuff at 17, like at mm-hmm. 16. Like it, it is so universal in in some ways and then other ways very specific to the black experience in the early 90s in Brooklyn. Yeah, I think that there's a interesting when you read a lot of black critics talking about the movie that she's kind of an unreliable narrator mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. she is so singularly focused. She's so focused on escaping the community 
and she is so focused on she is a high achiever so she's so focused on she has a relatively loving boyfriend who she leaves behind for this other mm-hmm. guy who's a hot you know hot dude who has a jeep yeah. drives, a car. Of, yeah. drives, a, drives a jeep uh and um and the other guy has a car it's just a crummy car <laughs> <laughs> it is mentioned uh but yeah it's kind of an interesting thing where you see her uh she is so singularly focused on escaping this community that she rejects the support of the community mm-hmm. um she she is so like harmed by kind of the systemic inequality that she's completely blinded herself to actual paths out and that she thinks she has to be self-reliant and she cannot trust any of the the people mm-hmm. trying to help her which is like a really kind of a really dark thing and also just it's an unreliable narrator because she seems so in control mm-hmm. and then you slowly start to realize like oh yeah this is a kid yeah <laughs> like uh yeah. she she's just the same as anyone else she's a kid with the responsibilities of an adult like that's what's mm-hmm. so complicated is having to you know really rear her two younger brothers and watch out for them and not get to like she can't even really ask for permission to go to a party on saturday night i mean she ultimately does go but uh it's just that complicated because of the circumstances her family are in. There's an interesting scene with her principal who is black and sits her down and basically tells her, and it's a complicated scene that, because she wants to skip a year of high school and go right into community college. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you are not polite enough to be in college. You're not a lady. Like, you are too loud. You got to simmer it down. For Sarah Lawrence people. will never accept you. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, you have to think at the same time, Boys in the Hood was making such a big deal mm. because it was the first black director nominated for an Oscar. Mm-hmm. She she says she considers this both like an answer to a lot of those types of films because it's a woman's perspective and also because she wanted to show that men could be good. Like you say, mm-hmm. the, the boyfriend is actually quite good in the end. It's interesting because I do think she still, at the end of the film, it still seems absolutely possible that she could become a doctor and mm-hmm. n- and get out of this community. It, it is still a very hopeful film. It is also about learning about the about the network that you had, like you said, Cam, about about the pathways out. Like she's, mm. when she starts to use her actual network, is when it's too late. Like a lot of the film deals yeah. with like horizontal learning, so it's like friends mm. sharing misinformation with each other, and then once she actually starts to trust certain people in authority who have proven they are worthy of trust, there's one particular worker at the health clinic who really steps up to bat, that's when she's like, okay, now I understand that there's, I, I can't be independent. There's certain things that I do need to do. Mm-hmm. Totally. And, and I think that it's a time where there was this big rise in like intra-community help and, and understanding that sometimes the way people are trying to help won't make sense uh so i think about actually like it's interesting this is obviously a film she's in in advertising so this is a film very deeply involved with like the hip-hop kind of feel of the early 90s well let's talk Uh, about the soundtrack because the soundtrack's also bananas and usually when films don't get like wide distribution releases because there's a soundtrack issue for the dvd Mm -hmm. but like they commissioned a lot of this music for Mm -hmm. this film yeah a a lot of the music is by a band with a name i love called bitches with problems (laughs) with a y (laughs) bitches with problems leslie harris had very specific ideas on why she wanted this to be a female artist-centric soundtrack and this is her in conversation at the BFI uh, talking about that. A lot of the black women on feature films were the sister, the mother, 
the girlfriend, and I wanted her to have her own voice. And so even through the music, Angie Stone did a wonderful job uh, to do the soundtrack, Mixed Up World, and Susan Vega gave us rights to use, like, for Daddy's Little Girl and um, Nikki D. So we had a lot of, like, the strong female voices. And at that time, you know, you had, like, Yo-Yo. For people, I'll date myself, (laughs) Queen Latifah. So we had a lot of, I think, strong women in music, and I wasn't seeing that in, on the screen. So that's why I wanted to have like a female soundtrack. Uh, but I think that it's interesting when you connect it to a lot of the hip hop of the time. Like this is a year after Let's Talk About Sex, uh, a great uh, AIDS related like educational song. That just about everything. Like DOA had a song about AIDS. Uh, you know, the, this is how a lot of the education was disseminated, and, and how a lot of the community felt like it's important for me to be a part of the education when it comes to my own community. The soundtrack is amazing, and and I think that that advertising background makes it a very like kinetic and exciting movie, mm-hmm. uh, as well as delivering these interesting messages, which you know you kind of wish. <laughs> Not that I don't think, I don't know that this movie would have changed the world because uh, she's fighting against uh, systemic inequalities. <laughs> but talking about like the marketing and stuff like that, I know Leslie Harris had to fight. To get the poster changed because they wanted uh, they didn't want to put Chantal on the poster by herself. They wanted her mm-hmm. with her boyfriend. And it's like, mm. really? Yeah. yeah. So this is at Sundance in January. It wins the special jury prize, which is is a big prize, but it, it deserved, in my opinion, looking at the other films it was in competition with much higher. Like the special jury prize is always what wins when it's like it's like the people's choice. Basically. It's worth noting that the special jury prize was specifically for best first film. True. Uh, it yes. seems like they made it up. Yeah. Kind of, you know. But it, it eventually, so what, after winning that prize, it does get noticed by Miramax, and that's who distributed it. So we we're talking about Gas Food Lodging having its poster changed to look, not changed, but like to be designed by Miramax to look very sexy. And it's Miramax who would have been telling her to take a different approach to the poster as well. All right. So we're all saying go out and watch this movie because it's amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, have a little uh, 1992 teen pregnancy marathon and watch Gas Food Lodging and Just Another Girl in the RT back to back. It's funny because we didn't even mention that Gas Food Lodging is about teen pregnancy, but it is. (laughs) Sorry. It's a a surprise for teens and it's a surprise for you. Hooray. All right. So I think that's everything for this segment. When we come back, we'll look at a movie that developed one of its key features after its star and director staged a photo shoot while playing dress-up in a costume shop. That's coming up after the break. Hey, listeners. If you're enjoying the podcast, Season 2 of the TV show is coming out December 6th, and you'll be able to see episodes covering 1975, 1986, 1994, and 2000. Not only will you see the faces of Cam, Alicia, and myself, and they're good faces, very expressive, but you're also going to hear from so many more film experts and maybe even some filmmakers talking about the movies you love. And here's where it gets even better. Hollywood Suite is in free preview for the whole month of December, and you can watch both seasons of A Year in Film and great movies from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Don't forget to watch the first season of A Year in Film now and find out how to catch the free preview while it lasts at hollywoodsuite.ca. You know that Hollywood Suite airs great content, and they've got a real treat lined up. December 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on the 2000s channel is the premiere of Valley of Tears, a 10-part HBO Max original drama series. You'll be able to watch the first two episodes back-to-back, and then each subsequent episode will air weekly after that on Saturdays. 
have raucous Saturday night plans? Don't worry. After the episodes air, they're going to be available on Hollywood Suite On Demand exclusively. Listeners, the trailer alone for Valley of Tears is gorgeous, which makes sense because it's Israel's highest budget TV series ever, and clearly every dollar is on that screen. It follows four soldiers caught in the crossfire of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. I'm excited to watch it, one, because I know nothing about the Yom Kippur War and would like to know more about it, and two, because when people ask me what I'm watching, I'm going to be like, oh, just this amazing HBO Max original 10-part series called Valley of Tears that's airing exclusively on Hollywood Suite in Canada, and then a conversation will be started. Check out hollywoodsuite.ca for more information and to see that awesome trailer. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quick, who's the most controversial politician you can think of? Nope, not that one. Not that one, but good guess. Reagan? Close, very close. Margaret Thatcher. That's who we're thinking of. From 1979 to 1990, the so-called Iron Lady presided over the UK's Conservative Party. Her policies were divisive, in part because of the attacks she led against the working class, unions, and marginalized communities. Aldous Huxley, famous UK author and hallucinogen enjoyer, once said, Perhaps it's good for one to suffer. Can an artist do anything if he's happy? Would he ever want to do anything? What is art, after all, but a protest against the horrible inclemency of life? And whether or not you think that's bull honky or not, I have my own opinions, Thatcherism certainly inspired some artists to protest, especially film artists from the queer community. Cam, do you want to walk us through what these artists were reacting to and what the ripple effect into 1992 was? Probably for North American audiences, which I'm assuming in most of our audiences, the easiest way to explain the kind of difference of uh, how homosexuality was treated in England is to compare it to America. Uh, and I do want to put the caveat that I am not in any way endorsing Ronald Reagan's <laughs> views on homosexuality. But one thing worth noting is Ronald Reagan was the governor of California. Uh, he actually was against the Briggs Initiative, which uh, would have banned uh, homosexual people from teaching in schools. He went so far to write a note that essentially said, you know, he's a uh, love the sin or hate the sin kind mm. of guy. Uh, he believed homosexuality and, and I think generally his government 
believed that it was naturally occurring. Uh, it was just a thing that people should fight against and, uh, <laughs> you know, convert themselves from. Margaret Thatcher's government, on the other hand, was a very nurture-looking government. And I think that they believed that uh, the gay pride movement and the increasing visibility of gay people was uh, due to the culture, uh, that the culture of the 1970s had been promoting homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And that is why... Uh, there were more gay people. Uh, so she ended up enacting something that is a bit harsher uh, than uh, what happened in America, which was called Section 28 of the Local Government Act. It stated that local authorities shall not intentionally promote homosexuality or publish material with the intention of promoting homosexuality. That's sounding a whole lot like modern-day Russia, isn't it? Yeah, a little Ugh. something akin to that. So um, essentially trying to lock down uh, the culture mm. to not say that homosexuality was normal or naturally occurring. Um, this obviously caused a lot of political uh, tension. Uh, the gay community really organized. People like Ian McKellen came out on BBC Radio uh, purposefully wow. to fight against it, to say, I am a gay person. Uh, being gay is normal and fine. By the time we're in 1992, we've switched over to John Major. He, a lot like uh, George H.W. Bush, relaxed actually a lot of the anti-gay sentiment, uh, worked a lot, a lot harder with gay communities, uh, especially worked against AIDS. Um, the damage had been done, and especially when you're talking about film production, I think this definitely pushed people. There became a political interest in gay stories. And then to go to kind of the boring end of things, uh, simultaneously, uh, <laughs> uh, the BFI and the BFI production board, uh, which was in charge of essentially uh, giving money to films that were non-commercial, um, they had recently teamed with Channel 4, which gave them a lot more money and a lot more interest. Isn't in Channel 4 films. like their saucy channel? <laughs> I, I like it's not as classy uh, as BBC. Sure. Okay, but they have a lot of money. They're a, they're a non-governmental channel. Okay. It, that's kind of their big deal in the eighties. Uh, so yes, I believe they had more sex stuff because <laughs> uh, the BBC is not paying for sex. Uh, but anyway, there was a lot more money uh, suddenly in the BFI production board, um, and they were like they were interested in producing these non-commercial stories. And I think probably especially due to Section Twenty Eight. Uh, they were interested in producing queer stories. So you see the rise of a lot of directors like Derek Jarman, who I'm sure we'll talk a little more about in this segment, uh, Isaac Julian, people like that. Uh, and uh, actually, it's interesting, earlier we were talking about Sundance, and actually this Sundance, there was a huge series of queer British films. Uh, there was Edward II in Caravaggio by Derek Jarman, Young Soul Rebels by Isaac Julian, and Distant Voices Still Lives by Terence Davies. So I think that people were interested in queer stories and specifically queer stories quite often that were historical, mm -hmm. uh, saying that homosexuality was nat like, again, it was naturally occurring. Uh, gayness has always been here in Britain. It is not a product of uh, 1970s excess. <laughs> uh, queerness and non-straight life has always been here. Well, it's interesting you bring up Derek Jarman. Um, that's uh, a name that we have heard a lot on this podcast, uh, as well as in the, the TV series. And a lot of people don't know he was responsible for the mentorship of one of our most iconic stars today, because it's wild how far back actress Tilda Swinton has been taking roles that played with gender. Uh, she started as a space alien robot named Friendship in Friendship's Death in 1987. Uh, she was also on stage as Mozart in Pushkin's Mozart. 
Mozart and Salieri in 1989, and the pictures from that are awesome. Her giant eyes <laughs> and the huge wig. It's so great. Today, that kind of gender bending is something she's particularly known for. My personal favorite is David Bowie's music video for The Stars Come Out Tonight, where they play each other. It's, uh, it's pretty good. But right alongside that performance as my favorite is the role that really launched her into the public consciousness as this unique talent. And that's 1992's Orlando. And it's a film that she really had to work alongside writer-director Sally Potter to get made at all. Uh, Alicia, I know this is a big one for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't even. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's gorgeous. This is a beautiful film. If you have not seen it, it's short. It's only an hour and a half. It's wonderful. If I was trying to think about what are the films I've seen the most in my life, and this must be in the top ten, if not like the top five, I watch this almost religiously uh, every few months. I love it that much. It is directed by uh, Sally Potter, who is uh, a really important British uh, director. This was kind of, it's her most well-known film, I would say. It's an adaptation of Virginia Woolf's 1928 novella, Orlando, which was always defined as unfilmable. There's not a ton of Virginia Woolf adaptations out there in the film world. The film world is a little bit terrified still of Virginia Woolf, it seems like. And I mean, there's a reason for that. But I think Tilda Swinton has a very unique perspective on uh, when someone says something is unfilmable, uh, what that actually means for your project. The great task was to approach the idea of making a film that might touch us, let alone anybody else, in the way in which or in a similar way in which that book had touched us. It was a tall order. And we did have five years of people telling us it was impossible. Um, that's sort of part of the course I now realize when you want to adapt anything worth adapting. There's always uh, many more people telling you that it's impossible. And, and I'm beginning to realize that's a good sign because <laughs> it means it might be worth the, worth the effort. The idea that that makes Orlando so unfilmable is that it takes place over 400 years with the title character, Orlando, starting out male in gender and transitioning throughout the four centuries into female. So when we're talking about gender bending, you know, until the Swinton, which is very haute 1980s and 1990s. Virginia Woolf kind of did it first in the 1920s. Uh, So obviously it's a historical epic, but unlike most historical epics, I mean, I can't think of many films that take place over 400 years. In fact, I can't (laughs) think of a single one. That are at least five five hours long, you know, they're like beautifully condensed into cinematic treasure bites. There might be a biblical epic out there that I'm not realizing took place over. <laughs> Some science fiction movie where they go into cryo sleep sure. or well, something like Cloud like Atlas kind of is something sure, I can sort of think yeah, that way. Cloud yeah, Atlas. Okay. yeah, Orlando is the Cloud Atlas of 1992. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let Sally Potter hear that. Um, and so Orlando starts out in the Elizabethan court uh, with Queen Elizabeth I being played by notorious raconteur Quentin Crisp in drag. And transitions. Uh, Orlando wants to be a poet, really struggles with that. It's a very funny film. Um, Orlando trying to be a poet 
is very funny to me. Like when the, he reads out his horrible poems, like horrible <laughs> poems. And you have a lot of cameos in this film from like Jonathan Swift and Alexander Pope, who technically were all dead at the time. But there's a, a huge sort of homage to the great poets. Oh, my God. Yeah. I don't even know how to continue with this. <laughs> Do you want to start with the costumes? <laughs> yeah. They're they're designed by Sandy Powell, uh, one of the most renowned costume designers ever. I know that a lot of the concept for how this film was going to play out beyond the adaptation of Wolf for both Sally Potter and Tilda Swinton arose in a a photo shoot that occurred where they rented some period era um, costumes and just started taking photos. And that really defined how Orlando would look. And Orlando looks incredible, but it is a lot of it is a result of the incredible prowess of Sandy Powell and these iconic, iconic costumes. Just to, she got nominated for an Oscar for this one, didn't she? Yeah, she's been. I mean, I I, I don't have my. I could look it up. But I, I'm going to guess she's oh. been nominated like twelve times for costumes. Yeah, yeah. she has three Oscars. Uh, she won her first one for Shakespeare in Love, mm. uh, The Aviator. Nominated for her, her first nomination. I would say you know this is probably one of the films that put her on the map as the preeminent period costume designer. But she did this with no budget. Like Correct. she was having to improvise how to do panniers. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. Yeah, and, there's, and as much as there's a lot that is very historically, you know, copacetic in, in this film, there's a lot that is a little bit, there's a little element of steampunk in it with the costumes where the shapes are very, let's say, pre-Raphaelite, but it's made with leather, like kind of materials that you wouldn't expect. This is a very cool film. And all you do is watch Orlando run through the centuries as an immortal, although it's never addressed why he's immortal. He does sleep an inordinate amount of time. So maybe it's that. <laughs> it's but, only when he's sad, though, or emotionally disturbed yeah. in some way. He sleeps and he wakes up and then he's good. He gets his heart broken a lot. Um, and this film is is takes place in England. It takes place in, well, it's supposed to be Constantinople, but she actually filmed in Uzbekistan, which are some of the most stunning scenes of the desert. Uh, and She's it, got some wild stories about even attempting to film in Uzbekistan in the 90s. Like, that's just crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but she did it. She had to, I believe, I could be wrong. This might be facetious. I believe she bribed a Russian noble of some sort <laughs> in order. <laughs> that's from my understanding, that happened. Yeah, yeah. in order to use. I a think castle. that's usually how. Yeah, it works. I mean that's just yeah. how Russian film production goes. But uh, I want Orlando action figures so badly <laughs> because it, it is one of those films, kind of like Beetlejuice, where like there's just like such iconic costumes and such mm-hmm. I- iconic points in the film that I just want someone to make me, maybe it'd probably be custom because I don't think these will sell commercially, but like Tilda Swinton Orlando, I want like 18th century Orlando. I want like the Orlando when she first realizes she's a woman. I want like motorcycle Orlando from the 1920s with her daughter in a sidecar. <laughs> like I want action figures so badly. Um, there's a lot of interesting roles in this for, we'll talk about it later, Billy Zane is like oh, man. Har- Harlequin <laughs> Harlequin romance. Um, uh. We've talked in this episode about how posters get changed a lot. And mm. the funny thing about Billy Zane being on the poster and all the marketing material for this film is he's only in it for, I believe, nine and a half minutes. So it's and like, he's second yeah. build for this. Like, it's yeah. like Tilda Swinton, Billy Zane. He was their big get. I would have second build Jimmy Somerville, who does a song Same at here. the end. Uh, this is one of my favorite conclusions to a film that kind of take the form of a music video, which this one very much does. Um, Her eyes change color throughout the film, so you can tell when she's in a different century or her gender is morphing based on her eye color, 
which is very Tilda which Swinton. Which is wild. It's, well, yeah. this movie is full of so many little details. There is one scene in the film that's entirely populated by twins mm-hmm. because they wanted to talk about the duality. But the way they shoot it, there's no way you would know it's entirely <laughs> populated by twins. Yeah. Like it is the attention to details. Wild. It's one of the I believe it's one of the Uzbekistan siege scenes. And so, yeah, it's all the background characters are twins, but they they then ultimately didn't do a pan shot. So you can't see it they're all out of focus (laughs) yeah i think that kind of stuff is worth saying and and like the inclusion of jimmy somerville uh who's the lead singer for bronski beat for people who don't know uh, openly gay uh artist for his whole career and known for his falsetto Um, as well so there's more gender stuff there you get plenty of but i think it's worth saying that sally potter is kind of like a polymath Mm -hmm. uh, and that really comes out in this film she's somebody who she founded a dance company she does all this art like tilda swinton and her were collaborating for five Mm -hmm. years before orlando on works that are not filmed you know they're they just were two artists kind of doing their art thing and i think that that's partially why this is a little hard to talk about because it's it is mostly a comedy Mm -hmm. like you say like it's a strange light movie but it's full of all these essentially art movie sequences um, yeah, where something like a boy frozen in the river oh. is is like held on for a long I time. I love that scene so much, which I believe there's a lot of references to painting in this mm-hmm. film. There's a, a lot of tableaus that Tilda Swinton and Sally Potter actually stage that are like living paintings. There's the death of Marais is referenced. And I believe that little boy frozen. There's a it's a one of the earliest scenes. It's a winter scene and they're walking onto the ice and they just see this little boy or child with a bowl of fruit under the ice, totally frozen over, and they're just standing over it and laughing. And I believe, and I can't remember, I feel like I saw that painting somewhere in the Prado or something mm-hmm. like that. I'm, I'm dying to find out what painting that is. So if one of our listeners knows, that would be great. <laughs> and Sally Potter and Derek Jarman were definitely in the same circles, especially through the idea of performance art and choreography. And collaborative filmmaking, yeah. too, like to, to that everybody makes it together and everybody brings their component to the team. And it's 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 not an auteur. It's everybody working. together. Yeah. To and make German thing. made waves in the 1980s. Well, he really started making waves in the 1970s. And we talk about that in the first episode of the television series, A Year in Film, with his um, 1978's Jubilee. Another reference to Queen Elizabeth I, which obviously there was a lot of reflection during these Thatcher years on, you know, the, the dynasty of the, the United Kingdom and, and what that empire meant with, like, a strong female leader, which I don't think Thatcher was. It is it is probably important to note that Derek Jarman um, would die of AIDS in 1994. So he wasn't as active. I believe there is his last film is 1994, which Tilda Swinton does appear in. But, like, really you see kind of Sally Potter use a lot of his atelier at a time when we kind of were realizing his filmmaking might not exist anymore and make it a little bit more commercial. Like this isn't necessarily a commercial film, but it was released as a commercial film and it did quite well, despite Kenneth Turin calling it smug and hollow. (laughs) Well, they were really gunning to make an impact with this film. I mean, to get it made at all, but to really make an impact with it. And the stories of them trying to get funding very early on are really quite delightful. They're so scrappy and resourceful and they themselves would admit naive. And I think Tilda Swinton, uh, when 
when she was interviewed at the BFI, lays the story out better than I ever could. And we went to Cannes to try and raise money for this film. These two total hicks with absolutely, no, you know, and in 19, whatever it was, 1988, 1989, uh, very pre-digital. And we made these books, really beautiful, linen-bound, embossed books. All, we pooled our money and we went to whatever it's called, Berman's and Nathan's costume hire. And we hired one Victorian woman's gown and one Elizabethan Dublin hose. And we went down in my little car and we bought our visitors tickets in Knoll, which is a big old stately home. And they said, don't take photographs. And we sort of, you know, I went, jumped behind a bush and changed and then came out and <laughs> took a photograph. And those photographs were stuck into these books. And off we went to Cannes with a hundred of them. And uh, as anybody who's ever been to a film festival knows, people, when you arrive at Cannes, they inundate you with all this nonsense for all the films they want to get made. And you just stick them in the bin. So 98 of these books got thrown away. But Sally and I kept one each. Just the idea of that is wild, that you'd have these beautifully bound books and you'd just have to pass them to people and they'd end up in the garbage. Yeah, I mean, that's very early 90s to me, mm -hmm. like this idea of, of what the film markets were like in the early 90s, which obviously I was never able to participate in. But it just seemed like a wild, wild world where that was possible. And I think Orlando's a wild film that I don't know how it would even be made today, let alone, what are we at, like 30 years ago? Well, it's also there's a lot less chances that are being taken in this way for these kinds of films. And um, I think Tilda Swinton's choices in her career definitely reflect that she does her best to find these unfilmable projects that shouldn't yeah, be made so at all. Yeah, and so much of Tilda Swinton's reputation is built off of this film. This is really her iconic film. It's what I picture way before she was in Marvel films, which I don't think we ever saw coming when we were first watching Orlando, that she would be like a Marvel Cinematic Universe person. <laughs> Um, or even like something like Wes Anderson. I do think it, it really does harken back to the importance of Orlando. And the fact that they were able to raise funding for this film, like if you look at, you know, co like it's very common for British film to have a lot of co-production countries. This one, though, is a little unusual in that it's the United Kingdom, France, Italy, Netherlands and Russia. Uh, mm -hmm. That is a unique combo, I think, where it really shows that she was going everywhere to attract funding and which also allowed for her to film in some of these locations. And I think you see that in the kind of unusual cast too, mm -hmm. uh, uh, because I, I think actually in many ways it kind of reflects modern things because that co-production almost seems modern because that's true. how you it's make true. these yeah. mid-budget things. Now, but you have yeah. stuff like weirdly Canadian actor Lothair Bluteau, who is mm -hmm. pretty known for uh, being at home with Claude, which is a pretty like seminal Canadian queer movie shows up as like the con and you're like oh weird <laughs> like uh, of all the people uh, you chose uh, this guy but I wonder if that's a French you know a tip of the hat to the French mm -hmm. funding being mm -hmm. like let's get a guy who's popular in France yeah you know if I'm thinking about Orlando in 2020 and and beyond I was in doing research for this film I was gutted to find out that the scheduled 2020 Met Gala theme was Orlando, which of course got canceled. Heartbreaking. So like they actually, when they announced yeah. it and uh, before coronavirus had all the shutdowns, like in early 2020, they led with the f uh, the photo or even like a scene of Tilda Swinton when she emerges from this hedge maze. The hedge maze is a really 
focal point in this film, and it's a good metaphor for how the film actually works structurally. She emerges from the head mage into a different century and fully formed as a woman. They wanted to go with that for this year's Met Gala. And so the Met Gala for 2020 was tied to an exhibition, which is called About Time, Fashion and Duration. And it was curated by S. Devlin, who's really fantastic. I want to see this exhibition. I just love the idea that this film is the theme of a Met Gala. Like, it's such a, like, I feel like Schitt's Creek could reference this. And, like, there's just so many. I would love to know what Billy Porter would wear <laughs> for Orlando. Like, I'm sorry. Billy from Porter's Pose, are always yeah. my favorite outfit. So I'm very excited to see what, well, she, what he and would wear. Here's, here's what I picture. This is where my brain went. Like, very excited about Met Gala. Obviously, I'm always really obsessed with the photos that come out of that. Would Billy Zane have attended? And what? Oh, Billy what, Zane. Would he, would he have attended <laughs> potentially as his character? Like, what would <laughs> Maybe as a, again, Harlequin romance, romantic. Let's definitely think some Prince Charming action. Sprained ankle. Oh, you know, people would have shown up in horses, except for it would probably be two half naked oh men God. in like oh horse God. drag, and they would show up, and it would be a thing. Okay, like so the what Pelican. would Tilda Swinton, who's always like a power player on the red carpet for the Met Gala, what would she have done? <laughs> like it's her <laughs> film. <laughs> You know, it's, and I'm going back to Billy Porter, it's unfortunate somebody's already done the tuxedo oh, on the top and the ball yeah. gown on the bottom because that's just I was just going to say thing. that this is her excuse to show up in a t-shirt and jeans in my book. <laughs> <laughs> be like, I am Orlando. Well, yeah, yeah. I did this already. Because you can't, honestly, I cannot think of anyone else who could have no. played this role in like the last half no. century. Like it's so, it only really works because of her performance. Because not only is she beautifully blank when she needs to be, so she just lets everything else kind of happen around her and you're able to interact with her. But then when she needs to come to life where there's like these little side glances to the audience, which are the best, which lets you lets you in on the joke, then she's just full of personality and joy and you can't help but love her. So it's this really interesting back and forth performance of like completely blank and like just this bucket of charisma. It's complicated. She's both a canvas and unmoldable, which I don't even know how that works. Um, But her ability to collaborate with brilliant artists, which she's done throughout her career, maybe minus the Doctor Strange films, um, (laughs) not to bash those. But (laughs) But but she's fearless. She is fearless in what she takes. I, I, I love that, you know, the book obviously ends in 1928, the year that it was published. And Sally Potter takes Orlando to 1992, effectively. So you you really do see that full transition. And I do like thinking about what is Orlando doing in 2020, like during coronavirus? How has our more recent understanding of issues around trans rights and gender and an opening up of these conversations and and hopefully even more progress, how does that, how would that affect Orlando as a character, as a person Today, like I just love kind of sometimes I'll, while watching it, as I've watched it throughout the years, try to think of like what are the scenarios that Orlando would be affected by. Virginia Woolf wrote this novel, novella, for her lover, uh, Vita Sackville mm-hmm. West, who is an interesting human being in her own right. She had a very open marriage with her husband, who was also more than likely bisexual, uh, if not straight up gay. She was bisexual, if not straight up gay. She was also a writer. And the character of Orlando is based on her and that Virginia Woolf was trying to figure out how this woman mm-hmm. ticked. So there is that air of mystery around it. But it's also about the struggle of the artist. She wants to be a poet and she's not 
able to write her masterpiece until she's had 400 mm-hmm. years of experience and learning how to become an artist. Like, what a profound, freaking annoying statement. Yeah, I mean, coming back to earlier in the episode, the idea that Alison Anders made gas food lodging and Leslie Harris made another girl, just another girl in the IRT, out of life experience seems why, to me, why those two films are so special. And so I love the idea of Orlando. I mean, Sally Potter already had a lifetime experience in art when she made this. She didn't need that. It really is about the character of Orlando getting beaten and bruised in the heart and then being able to potentially turn out... um, a book or a poem. And one of the major misunderstandings of this film is that even though she switches gender throughout it, is that it's a movie about gender and it's it's, it's not really, really not. It's about yeah, so much more. Yeah, I mean, it's always those, it's played for comic effect, but those, you know, when she, when she transitions into a woman, she's effectively declared dead and therefore not able to own property. So she like loses her house and, and you know, they're, they're mm-hmm. really funny sequences, but it does make you reflect on gender inequality at least not necessarily what defines being female what defines being male and anything in between or on either side it really is more about the construct of gender and how arbitrary it is well she has that fantastic line which is same person different sex like that's what that is which is really oh man to think that was written in in the 1920s is wild yeah that was a very controversial publication for Virginia Woolf for obvious reasons (laughs) well Virginia Woolf was a controversial Mm -hmm. human being so so I get it I mean Orlando is very much a look at an individual passing through into the future and our next film is about looking at the past and what made you you a Liverpudlian director who we already discussed earlier Terrence Davies has made a career of chronicling British working class families in a visually stunning way. Uh, The Long Day Closes from 1992 fits into that mold and was even nominated for the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Cam, for those who may not be familiar with Terrence Davies, uh, what can you expect watching one of his movies and uh, how does Long Day Closes fit into this filmography? Uh, Well, you can expect a lot of music. He loves music. You can expect a lot of kind of dreamy visuals. Quite often his films play specifically with memory and flowing. When we talk about Sally Potter as this big artist, he is also somebody who uh, he considers himself primarily a filmmaker, but I think he is obsessed with art film. Uh, He's famously a weird curmudgeon. Uh, He is the (laughs) kind of guy who says he does not watch any modern movies. He cannot. He loathes them and only watches films from his youth. Uh, He just says that making films has ruined him for film. Uh, Yet he mentions watching an old episode of uh, Murder, She Wrote. Well, that's uh, that's the TV show that transcends all (laughs) curmudgeons. (laughs) Who among us? Uh, But no, he's this very interesting, sticky character. Uh, It's interesting both of these films kind of exist uh, when we do a 1991 episode, we'll talk, probably talk about the queer new wave of cinema. Uh, this exists outside of it partially because he uh, d- is not proud of being gay. Uh, he is a lapsed mm-hmm. Catholic. Uh, famously, he hates the church. He hates the queen. Uh, mm. <laughs> he hates most like systems of control. But he openly admits he's quite uncomfortable with his own homosexuality, uh, which is kind of interesting, and you see it throughout his films. Uh, But yeah, these are all a look back. He was essentially an artist who primarily, at this point in his career, reacted against the British 
kitchen mm-hmm. sink dramas, uh, which was kind of a movement at the time. Uh, and But his way of reacting, a lot of people reacted with these sumptuous movies about modern life that no longer were gray. But his kind of interesting thing is the plots aren't that different from the kitchen sink dramas. He just is showing that at the same time, there was beauty and romance in this post-war working class England. Uh, He's somebody who worked in autobiography uh, up until this point. This film is really The Long Day Closes, his final autobiographical film. But before it, he made a trilogy of films. And as we said, The Distant Voices Still Lives is kind of two separate films molded into one that played at uh, Sundance this year uh, from 1988, which got him a lot of attention. Uh, And then this film is Distant Voices Still Lives deals a bit with his abusive father who died when he was six. Uh, it sounds like that was brutal, like yeah. ab- like beyond brutal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of fascinating for someone who died when you were six to loom so large mm-hmm. in your life. Um, yeah. Uh, but this film, uh, he has a young boy uh, named Bud, who is kind of his stand-in. Uh, he was a, a child, of, he was one of ten children in He's Liverpool. the youngest of ten. Uh, to a, the youngest of ten, uh, with a single mother, as we say, uh, Catholic um, growing up in uh, post-war Liverpool, and that's kind of where this scene is set. Uh, and we follow Bud and Bud's memories, honestly, of this time, this period when he's 11 years old. Uh, you can see his blossoming homosexuality and how that both runs him into trouble at school and with boys and in the church. Uh, but really, it's a lot about his mother and his relationship with his mostly sisters and a couple brothers uh, and his love Mm -hmm. of movies. Uh, You see that he loves to escape to the movies. That's his number one thing. Everybody mocks him on it. And it's kind of this mix of music and movies and memories. uh, But it also includes stuff like uh, what they say is likely the longest shot of a carpet in film history. Uh, (laughs) That's right. I I was aware of that (laughs) shot going in and I did not expect it to be as moving and beautiful as it was. I, yeah, you know what? I will say until I researched, I didn't even notice because you're so it, it's such an overwhelming film emotionally. I think you're either in it or you're out. I wouldn't blame somebody if they can't get into this movie. But if you're in it, you th- you don't mind the carpet at all. <laughs> so the way you explained the film cam was very linear and you were like, here, we're following this boy and this is what he does. Mm. That's not what mm-hmm. this movie is. Mm. And you talked about memory and it is like a flow of memories mm. in and out and things fade and they he uses music to transition so one character will be singing and then the music will actually come into the background of the soundtrack and then you're transitioning into the next scene. So there isn't there's a linearness but not Really? It's so dreamlike and so ethereal that, yeah, if you're either in or you're out. And I also think it's very, like what you talk about with memory, it's very deeply, and I think realistically, obsessed with kind of the mundanity mm-hmm. of it all. Because, like, you will remember the way your hand ran over a pot or something. Or the weird deeply. pattern on the carpet. Yeah. yeah, the weird pattern, the way the light moves across the carpet. That is weirdly the memories that stick with you so much of it is like sensory right like sensory memories i've never seen a film outside of like an installation in a museum where i felt texture like this is the most textured film i can imagine like we're talking about that carpet but there's also curtains lace wool bread like i just started writing down everything i could close my eyes and feel like i was touching 
by watching this film. I mean, the very opening, the the rain on the cobblestones, right? Immediately you mm-hmm. have that time, place, that sensation because you're out in the rain and all you want to do is go inside, right? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. an interesting film too because you kind of realize, you know, an hour in, you're like, oh, it's been raining almost this whole time. Like there's mm-hmm. no way it rained his entire, entire childhood. But you can <laughs> see that like it's it. like when he remembers his childhood, it's raining. Uh, Mm -hmm. which is kind of it is interesting because he so artfully does it that you don't question this kind of stuff it just you can kind of connect and I think that's in a way he can feel however he wants to feel about his uh, own uh, queerness but I think that that's a thing that will let anyone into the feelings because a lot of it is about you know he's fascinated by the builders next door uh, he's just mm-hmm. a soft boy who loves sitting in his sister's laps and singing with his mom. He's horribly, horribly bullied yeah. at school. And they, I think Davies does a really good job of capturing that. Because you'll see, you know, and the kids are calling him gay, mm-hmm. like out, outright in the schoolyard. And that escape he has in the movies is really what Ugh. drew me in. It's similar to gas food lodging in some ways. But you're you're getting, and I, I think Davies does it so well. You don't ever see the scenes of what he mm-hmm. sees on screen. You only see lines of dialogue from these very, very famous, all almost all British films kind of come up in other parts of his life. So the, the films that get focused on are Orson Welles' Magnificent Ambersons, which is such an interesting parallel to how he's his own family is evolving. You have David Lean's Great Expectations, which makes perfect sense. And then you have this song by Judy Garland from Meet Me in St. Louis, which I think is so interesting. You really have this like cacophony of of just what was going on in 1940s and 50s. Debbie Reynolds' Tammy is such a huge part of this too, right? Yeah, yeah. One day I will die. And on my tombstone, in lieu of an epitaph, I would very much like the shot just like projected directly onto it of the movie theater overhead shot of the movie theater transitioning into the church Mm -hmm. because that is one Mm -hmm. of the most beautiful things I think Mm -hmm. I've ever seen. It's so seamless and just stunning and it just makes so much sense of coming from this place of safety to this place of of fear for all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It's interesting because it's it is such a warm movie and a movie that ultimately makes you feel good. But there's all these kind of things throughout. I think it took a lot of rewatches for me to even realize how like deeply it's tackling these institutions but yeah he is somebody who very violently hates what the church does to people and uh to children sure and, and institutions he hates schools he hates like he, yeah. he definitely believes that that is a super damaging part of this and that the home and the family is kind of this beautiful place uh where you have this community, and that's the music. He's he always talks about that mm-hmm. singing together was so important. You see that through all his movies. One of his films actually features the voices of his family singing mm-hmm. all these songs together, and it's yeah, it's this interesting tension because so much of it seems like a beautiful time. And, and I, I mean, he, that's what he says. He's like he wants to show that there's beauty in this. It, it's post-war Britain. It's a miserable time. So much mm-hmm. of their houses are gray and weird. And, uh, <laughs> and gone. <laughs> and I mean, he has no bones. I love that he has no bones, that his family is violently racist. Uh, they they mm-hmm. talk racist a lot. There's a crazy scene where a black man uh, walks into their house and they do not act well about it. Uh, no. So he's not pulling any punches about the bad stuff, but it's still, you still understand this warmth and nostalgia 
for a time that was bad. He has this great quote where he he describes his childhood as divided into three periods. One, a horrible period from zero to seven years old. (laughs) Two, an ecstatic period from seven to 11 years old. Where his dad died. Uh And three, a painful period from 11 years old onwards when the death of his childhood is assumed to occur. Uh, Yeah. So it's like, wow. I know in an interview, there's a really, I can't remember if it's an interview or an article that incorporates... Yeah, it's an article by Michael Koreski that um, incorporates an interview with Terrence Davies on this film on the Criterion website. And he just talks about how he wanted to make a film about the happiest, one of the happiest years of his life, which was the year where his father died because it meant an end to the abuse. And I see like I read it after I read that uh, little phrase after um, watching it. But I see that so much in this film that there's hatred and hostility towards children in the school system. Mm. And then there's coming home to euphoria and not knowing, you know, cause you, you, there's no mention of a father no. being dead or otherwise, or you're not sure if he was killed in the war. Like who knows? That's not brought up at all in the film. You have to find out for yourself from his own autobiography, which I think is really powerful, but just, there's little splashes of color in all the family scenes. Like, I don't know if you notice, like, the sister buys a pair of red high-heeled pumps. So you have all these, like, very muted grays and browns and then just a little splash of, like, red running up the stairs or, like, little splashes of color in his mother's costume. Like, you just focus on that so much because you've just seen a scene where... He- everyone's heads being inspected for lice Ugh, and like that seems so gross yeah or like corporal punishment yeah, with so children. much corporal punishment yeah. so much like horrible people running the school system mm. in England and the Catholic Church and uh, and then just seeing the, the, the coziness co- relative coziness of, of his family and knowing that that's his greatest memory was the death of his father yeah I kind of love the idea of Terrence Davies trying to cast a younger version of himself. He's one of those people that you can't actually imagine him being a child. Like, he fits so perfectly into this, like, adult body with this conversation style and intelligence and and just state of being. Um, And famously, he actually had difficulties with the child that he cast. As you can hear at this Badlands Collective screening of The Long Day Closes at ICA London. I just remember how difficult it was directing a child. Because you can't say to them, no, this is the psychological reason for your doing. They they just have to be. And um, he was very unresponsive. Um, And I got very, very worried about that. Because you can't, you can't shout at the child. I wouldn't shout at an, an adult. I couldn't possibly shout at the child. So you have to kind of cajole the performance out of him. Because I, I didn't want him to be sort of upset. I mean, when he first came down and I'd chosen him, he flatly refused to wear those clothes. <laughs> so I'm not wearing those. And because I don't have, have any children, I didn't realize that children are very fashionable conscious now. And I said, well, you know, that's what they wore in 1952. They did, because I wore them. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, it's a, I think that now Terrence Davies do, mostly does adaptations and things like that, uh, but he always does balance this kind of light and dark stuff. And it's interesting, he's somebody who makes no bones about, uh, his career is very sporadic, 
but it's uh, he says it's by choice. Essentially, he wants to do things his way. Uh, and yeah, he's he's also a guy who will he will call out film funding people by name in articles. <laughs> so uh, it is shocking he has not burnt every bridge. <laughs> he will, well, people uh, do refer to him as uh, England's greatest living filmmaker. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it, him. Yeah. But people say like he and Mike Lee are quite similar, where they are both mm-hmm. rambunctious. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a great quote where he always calls uh, Queen Elizabeth Betty Windsor and (laughs) people assume that he may have been offered things like an OBE and he probably turned it down Uh, but he has he says he has these scripts which sound he says he has a romantic comedy called Mad About the Boy where I'm like Taryn even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Davey, send me um. that script. Because he usually <laughs> makes such rot films, but I think that he cares so much about romance and and finding the beauty in any moment because his films are beautiful at the very least he reminds me of the british terence malick mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh i mean i i can't watch this movie without thinking about um the guy madden film my winnipeg which is also about memory in that sort of black and white grayness although that's about a fictional childhood so i can't help but wonder if these are plays on each other yeah and i also feel like interestingly terence davies has almost the sensibility of a Canadian filmmaker because mm, he is somebody who rocks so against the system. And he is especially frustrated, I think, nowadays that the British system has essentially turned very commercial. He uh, has a real mm. axe to grind against people like Steve Coogan, who gets to make <laughs> movies and he is not allowed to, uh, in a way that I'm like, come on, Steve Coogan's good. Uh, but uh, he. I love Steve Coogan, but I, I, I get what he's yeah, saying. Well, yeah, I, I think there. his thing is like. Uh, not that Canadians get to make a ton of movies, but at least the Canadian system is is fairly art forward, fairly cinema forward. Mm-hmm. And I think that he feels that the British system, especially with, interestingly, the loss of the, the production board, which we talked about, uh, he feels mm-hmm. like it's just gone completely commercial. He, he says that the UK might as well be a US colony based on the kind of movies they put out. So it, I get that. Yeah, I get what he's yeah, saying. Yeah. yeah, And in that way, it's like, oh, he, he might be a little more happy in Canada. If he was our Adam McGoyan, he might still be making more movies and, and he might be a little happier. Oh, quite possibly. Uh, I think that's just about everything, guys. Uh, I want to thank uh, Alicia Fletcher for joining me this week. Thank you so much. Thank you for allowing me to talk about Orlando. <laughs> again. You are more than welcome. I'm sure our listeners enjoyed it. Go watch Orlando. It's fabulous. Uh, and uh, Cam, thank you very much. Uh, thanks. A uh, reminder to all teenagers to use a condom. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and with that having been said, in two weeks, you're going to find out which child actress entered a prolific adult career in 1992 with a photo shoot that made Arsenio Hall make this noise. <laughs> all that and rapper acting. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. 
Want to chat with us and find more great content? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. The home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. Uncut and commercial-free on four HD channels and on demand. Learn how you can subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Kevin Lipset. Until next time. Our education is miseducation. <laughs> 